to the panel RNZ National. We have Nikki Bazand and David Farrow joining me this afternoon. Lovely to have you company. Well, grab the popcorn leaders debate. Bingo set to start. Fiscal hole, addicted to spending. What I would say to you is... It will be a cliché paradise. The first one-on-one leaders debate tonight, TVNZ 7pm, Chris Luxon versus Chris Hipkins. There have been some momentous one-on-one pairings in the past. Q, Bill English and Helen Clark, 2002, moderated by the late Paul Holmes. If the voters give a mandate, I'm willing to lead a government with the support of like-minded parties <laughs> because there are things... And who would they be? Who would they be? Mr. Peters or that? Chance would be a fine thing, Paul. With us, Joshua James, teaching fellow in politics at the University of Otago today. And Joshua, kia ora. Kia ora, Willa. It's a pleasure. No, my mind is going through some pretty classic uh, uh, debates in the past. You've got, you know, Longy, Muldoon, and then Phil Goff and John Key. What, tell me, what is the fundamental purpose of a one-on-one leaders' debate, do you think? Back under first-past-the-post, it was this great moment. The leaders would personify the different parties. Uh, so it was a chance for voters to really get a good understanding of um, the politicians and their parties and their policies. That's changed a little bit under MMP, but mm. it's really the only opportunity that voters get to, to hear straight from the horse's mouth. Does it favour personality over policy? Does it try and give some insights into the character of a Prime Minister or would-be Prime Minister? I think so. So if we think about the way that the politicians engage in the debate, that kind of speaks to their character, which the voters are interested in. Uh, Policy is important. We've seen policy being made up on the fly in previous uh, previous debates, so that is a core part of it as well. It is interesting to see some of the debate about um, whether or not the election debate will have an effect on swing voters. Uh, There's yes. not a lot of evidence to support that, um, right. which I think is interesting. I'll come to our panellists very, very shortly, Joshua, but I just want to play another moment that many will remember. Here we go truth of it is, he hasn't given you one dime you're going to get oh, that, in the next that, four years. You, well, you, you, okay, don't tell me where the truer million million you're coming from. It. Just tell I me where the money's coming from. Show me the money. Show me the money. I've got to tell you this. There you go, John Key, Phil Goff. And every debate, Joshua, I guess, will have one moment that sticks out, right? It's yeah, absolutely. So if we think about kind of the most uh, recent debate, we can think of the Talofa comment by Judith Collins, which sticks out as kind of the most memorable moment for many people. Uh, and often it's the, the, the thing that the media can uh, talk about the most as well. All right. To our panel, Nikki Bazant, are you excited or meh or what? How are you feeling? Well, I am kind of hoping that this debate might spark some enthusiasm from me for this whole election. <laughs> I'm feeling quite disengaged about it, to be honest, about the election. And I was kind of actually a little bit shocked to learn that it's only two weeks until voting opens because I feel very... Uh, distant from it. I mean, I have been writing a book and I've been a little hermit a wee bit, but I also wonder if that's just maybe the tenor of this general election campaign, that people are a bit, a little bit distant, uninspired by the whole thing. What's your sense, Joshua? 
so when I talk with my students, my 100-level students, there is a similar sense of kind of, oh, there's another election happening. However, we know that election debates do kind of rile people up. It gets them excited about the election. In particular, if your candidate wins the debate, whatever that means, uh, it's more likely to kind of work up that party's voters. So uh, it should build excitement. Yeah. What about you, David? I'm a bit meh, too. I, I'm more likely to tune into the multi-party debate okay. because there you could get some interesting clashes with Winston and Seymour and the Greens, etc. But where you can get, I guess, value is when uh, leader surprises. And I think of the first 2008 debate between Clark and Key when there was a question about sort of how would you define someone who's poor in New Zealand? And Helen went first and gave a very technically correct answer. Well, OECD measures poverty at 50%. And then Key said, I think you're poor when you're scared to open the mail. And it was just one of those moments that defied expectation that the guy who's the multi-millionaire understood, showed empathy, etc. And, you know, often people have talked back about that debate was quite pivotal. So I guess it's when someone surprises. We we have our stereotypes about Luxon and Hipkins. It will be, will they move outside those yeah. stereotypes? Fair point, Joshua. I think that, uh, I mean, that is a great point. I also think that Luxon has made a great job of kind of downplaying his uh, debating skills. Hipkins does have more on the line um, in this debate. You know, if he wins, he can energise his voters and his volunteers. And for a political party that doesn't have money, volunteers are so important. So there is more for uh, Hipkins to win, whatever that means. Um, so if Luxon kind of pulls it out of the bag, I think that'll be a great moment for him and his party. And also, Joshua, there is a lot of variation on what people want from the moderator, huh? You know, uh, an interjecting sort of style or really a hands off, let them put their case forward kind of style as well. I think the, the moderator needs to read perhaps the mood of the nation a bit. Yeah. I think that perhaps most voters are a little bit over the squabbling of the politicians and of other voters. So I think perhaps a more stern style. Um, will, will be helpful in the in this first debate and should set the tone for the other debates as well. Is that a fair point, Nikki? Is that the sort of debate you would like to see? A more so, you know, you've got the just answer the question, not to interjecty. Yeah, I would quite like to get see see the moderator kind of interrogate some of the some of the more meaty topics that we haven't really seen from you know because we've seen a lot of slogans and we've seen a lot of buzzwords as you said. I'd love to know a bit more detail on some things. Yeah. I wonder though too, I'm not a, I'm not someone who watches broadcast television. I think a lot of people are now just streaming things all the time. I am going to tune in for this, but I wonder whether these kinds of things. I mean, if someone wanted to see it, they have to tune into it. Yeah, do they and still And that's people's viewing habits have really changed over the over the last few years. Joshua I was talking, so I teach the introduction to New Zealand politics paper at Otago, and my students were asking me where they could watch it and how they could watch it, so there is interest. Mm. But most of the flats in Dunedin don't have you know, ready access to Freeview, or they don't have a TV that's connected to it. Uh, most of them will probably see clips of it on TikTok over the next few days. Yeah, so it's only it going to get broken YouTube. down into chunks. 
Yeah, someone's asking actually. Um, is it just a coincidence that the leaders' debate is being followed by "Would I lie to you"? Uh, <laughs> 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 well, we don't know that. My, my wonderful producer Sam will check out whether that's true or not. If the program after the leaders' debate <laughs> is indeed "Would I lie to you," we'll clarify that uh, later. Um, and just finally, Joshua, what about? audience participation because I mean I, I'm personally I'm quite addicted to leaders debates but I like both I like, I like the clinical you know the sort of very minimal stage set or sometimes I actually like a real town, town hall style where the audience is really encouraged to go boo or yay what do you think Joshua? Uh, I mean it's up to I guess that the studios will yeah. decide whichever gets the best engagement um, they will want to draw the numbers it's kind of a battle of the stations for their uh, which debate that people watch. Uh, so I think perhaps the town hall style is more, um, is better made for TV. Uh, but yeah. Nice to have you on, Joshua. Kia ora. That's uh, Joshua James, teaching fellow in politics at the University of Otago, Dunedin. And my producer, Sam Hollis, has just um, sent through the correct details. Yes, the debate uh, at seven will be followed by. Would I lie to you at <laughs> What is nine. that? Is that a game show? Well, David, you'd know, wouldn't you? It's a game show. I haven't watched live TV for many years, I'd afraid. <laughs> so I, 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 I can't answer that one. But just talking of the heckling, many years ago, around that 2002 debate, one of my jobs was to train the National Party supporters how to heckle because they were too polite. <laughs> they just weren't very effective at it. So that was one of my jobs a long time ago, was training people how to do smart heckles. Oh, what's your top tip for a heckle? Top that thing that they'll respond to that will get under their skin. So the one we had for Winston Peters was Michael Laws told you to say that, didn't he? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, because it would guarantee that he would actually respond to you, etc., and, and, and heckle back, and, and that was always successes if you actually got a leader to respond. <laughs> what do you prefer if you are watching debate? What's more, what what you you you? So you prefer the multi-party debates, David? This election I do because I think uh, there's a lot of interest. It's clear there's going to be no, not just no majority government, but not even like in the key era where the major party is like 95% of the government. So there's going to be significant influence. Um, you know, effectively, it's either a Labour Green Māori Party coalition or National Act or National Act New Zealand First, etc. So I, I and they're both going to be on both sides, you know, perhaps a third of the government caucus. So that's why this time okay. I'm just really interested in in uh, how they will interact with each other. Very good. All right. Uh, thank you, David Farrow and Nikki Bazant on the programme uh, this afternoon. Aotearoa's mental health system is no longer fit for purpose and delivering substandard care. This from a new study over 540 physicians out today. Most of New Zealand psychiatrists say the mental health system is not fit for purpose and it's getting worse. Over the past 10 years, moderate to severe illness has risen by nearly 40%. The Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists are urging all 
political parties to commit to urgent action. Timely to discuss this as it is Mental Health Week in Aotearoa. With us is Dr. Heran Thabru, child psychiatrist and paediatrician, chair of Tūte Akakaroa, New Zealand National Committee. Dr. Thabru, welcome. Wallace, it's nice to talk to you again. Just 3% of respondents felt that future planning was heading in the right direction. What does this tell you? Well, it's a pretty strong message. We had over two-thirds of our membership take part in the survey, which is quite unusual for a survey of this kind. And as you mentioned, uh, most people believe that, you know, resourcing of inpatient and secondary mental health and addiction services is not fit for purpose. About 90% reported increased demand and complexity of after-hours work, and nearly two-thirds reported staffing levels have decreased in the past few years. And we know that these views are not unique to psychiatrists. We certainly know our psychology, nursing and other colleagues in mental health services face similar issues. But this is leading to quite a sense of moral injury amongst clinicians um, who are trying to do their best to care for people, constantly feeling like they're failing. A sense of moral injury. On a practical level, what might this mean? Well, what this means, I think, is that people working in the system currently are finding it very difficult uh, and are not happy with the direction of travel. We certainly know that um, there's evidence that mental health outcomes are better when you can get people help sooner. And when we don't have enough psychiatrists and other specialists, it takes longer to get people help early enough, often enough, or for as long as they need. And this leads to people being admitted in crisis, being discharged home more quickly than is ideal, and ending up in this vicious cycle of illness rather than being supported to maintain their well-being. And we also know that we have one of the lowest number of psychiatrists, um, speaking from our point of view, per capita, compared with other OECD countries, uh, with particular shortages amongst child and old-age psychiatrists. We've been overly reliant on overseas-trained psychiatrists to fill gaps in our workforce for a long time. In fact, 40% of psychiatrists in this country were trained overseas. And we've got an ageing workforce with 30% uh, due to retire in the coming decade. And if we don't actually bump up the number of trainees, then we're going to be even more short of psychiatrists than we are now. Gosh, Nikki Bazant, here we are, Mental Health Week. It's just getting worse. It's yeah, not getting is, better. I, it's, I was really alarmed to read uh, what you said earlier, Wallace, that, that moderate to severe mental illness has risen by nearly 40% in the last decade. I'm wondering here, and what, some of the, what are the reasons? Do we know mm. why this is? There are a number of reasons for that. I mean, there's a lot of social determinants of health, including mental health. Um, so certainly economic uh, issues and COVID-19 would play some part in that. There's also um, beliefs that social media uh, is affecting particularly young people, particularly young women, uh, more than men. Uh, and there's many other reasons why at an individual and a family level why mental health problems might be rising. Uh, we also know that the population has increased, therefore demand for services has also gone up in, in keeping with, with that. Uh, we think, I mean, at any one time, probably there's about 260,000 New Zealanders who fall into the category of having moderate to severe mental health needs. That's wow. a big number, David Farrer. It is a big number, but here's the conflict I feel on this. Um, I've actually read Mental Health Commission reports or Mental Health Annual reports, and I know number of beds has actually decreased. The waiting times for young people, especially, hasn't got better. But if it's just funding, health funding's gone up 60% in six years. There was the big $1.9 billion package, which even the then minister said a couple of years later, I don't know how it's changed anything. So 
I do like what you've proposed that there are some specifics there, but I guess what I'll be asking is if a 60% increase in funding for the health system hasn't resulted in improvements in mental health. What will? What what will? Uh, how do we uh, make sure it flows through to better outcomes rather than just more spending? For sure. So, I mean, just to clarify where that funding has gone, most of it has gone into primary care through the Access and Choice Scheme, which we applaud because there was a gap in terms of primary mental health services uh, 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 delivery for a long time. So we're, we're glad that that's happening, but I don't think that's necessarily meeting the need of people with more moderate or severe mental health conditions. And that's why we're calling on the incoming government to invest $60 million over six years to support 60 new psychiatry training through the system and into practice, and also to commit to spending previous underspend from ring fence mental health funding and increasing um, the mental health budget and uh, rising cost of existing services by about $25 million over three years just to keep up with population growth. And finally, to actually invest in some decent data collection. The last mental health survey, as you may know, was done at Te Rahinangaro in 2006, which is almost 20 years ago. So we really need to make decisions for future investment based on current rather than historical need. Nikki. Well, that's a bit shocking that we don't have current data. That's even worse than nutrition data. Um, yeah, it is. It's impossible to plan in that case then. Well, we're planning on historical data and belief that things are still the same. But actually, until we get some update data and have a clinical quality registry program to monitor the quality of mental health care and, and, uh, and to keep up with more uh, frequent workforce data collection, I don't think we really will know that we're making a difference. What we do know now from the investment that's been made by government, that large increase, uh, as you talked about, in mental health funding, is that it's certainly being accessed by uh, particularly adults in primary health care, but probably more those with mild to moderate mental health needs rather than those with moderate to severe mental health needs, and certainly not by young people. Well, we'll see what happens in the election to see if there's any answers for you there. Dr. Thavru. Uh, meanwhile, uh, good to have you on the program. That's Dr. Heron Thavru, child psychologist, psychiatrist, excuse me, and paediatrician, uh, chair of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists there. Over the past 10 years, moderate to severe illness has risen by nearly 40%. And not, it's just not sustainable, is it? It can't keep going on like this. No, but I mean, it sounds pretty dire in terms of what are the solutions. Uh, it's, it was disturbing to hear um, hear and talk about the influence of social media there, because that is that is a new phenomenon. And I, I'm so grateful that I did not grow up with social media in my life, because I can see it's it's very uh, insidious the influence of social media, and it's generally bad for mental health. Yeah, and a couple of months ago, I managed to sort of break my what I call doom scrolling habit, you know, where you're just checking Twitter and Facebook all the times. And I've been actually a lot happier. I now don't take my phone with me so much. I'll leave it in the bedroom, etc. And breaking that habit of constantly being online and constantly checking for the latest on social media. actually does make quite a difference. We discussed um, just that yesterday on the program uh, with someone who is researching a few minutes of meditation pre-getting uh, on the, the, the tweets, mm. and your actual tweets are more positive, which is really it's quite fascinating. Anyway, uh, if you missed that, you can go and check it out on iHeart, on Apple, on Spotify, or on the RNZ app. 
But to this, now yesterday we talked, actually David Cormack brought it up, um, what film scene has always, for whatever reason, stayed with you? And uh, I just said earlier, the scene from the castle, Dennis DeNuto standing up and said, it's just the vibe, Your Honour. It's Marbo. It's the Constitution. <laughs> it's an amazing scene. And some wonderful, wonderful responses have come through about this uh, another one here, Steve McQueen doing up his seatbelt with a gl- big loud click before the car chase over San Fran streets in the movie Bullet Terry. But with us from Napier is Grant. Welcome to the show, Grant. Hello, how are you? Good. What's your special scene? The scene that you have always remembered? At Rod Steiger and Sydney Portier in the heat of the night when. Um Rod, uh, Rod Steiger meets Sidney Poitier and says, you know, what's your name, boy? Um, and uh, um, Sidney Poitier, you know, pauses and with absolute disdain says, my name is Virgil Tibbs and I am a policeman. Uh, it just still sends shivers down my, my throat, even when Rod Steiger moved the cigar from one side of his face to the other. <laughs> wow, it sounds like quite a... F- I've never seen it. Is it, is it worth digging out, Grant? Yeah, uh, the heat of the night was—I um, believe it was you know, one of the movies of the year back in something or other, which we won't discuss. Um, but it was—it was just an amazing, amazing film. I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. I'm going to look for it on YouTube now. It, sounds... it goes back to the '60s. Yeah, quite like a bit of '60s. Very movie cool, action. Grant. Thanks for the heads up. I'll be looking for that. Cheers. All right, now um, here is a little bit of what David Farrer chose. Have a listen. This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! Including her! And the film, David? is, of course, The Shawshank Redemption. And everyone now says they love it, but what a lot of people don't know is, at the time, it commercially bombed. Um, It just became really popular on VHS. It was one of the most popular VHS ones. I didn't know. I didn't know that. No, no, everyone just knows it now. And that's why I love it in the so many about that scene is it changes your whole perception of the movie where you think he's just given up, he's been there for 20 years and you suddenly think, oh my God, the determination, the, the de- dedication to be basically lo- using a little spoon to dig a teeny uh, bit of a tunnel just oh, absolutely stays with you. What a film. It's a yeah. film that you can just go back to, can't you, every Christmas? Oh, I've seen it 20 <laughs> times, maybe, yeah. <laughs> the Shawshank Redemption, okay, yeah. and for Nikki's, take a listen to this. Okay, then, listen. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. <gasps> what do you mean? Oh, I've got a tear in my eye. Oh, Thelma and Louise, fantastic movie. And that's the end, oh. of course, where they drive off over the cliff. Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis drive it over the a, cliff. It was a cop-out, wasn't it? No. They it was a cop-out. Well, no, it, no, it was yes, a perfect it was. ending for that film. 
and you don't even see, you just see the, the it closes on the film on the car That's just right. floating in the air it just uh, pauses there David with their hands clasped together it's beautiful yeah it took me a few seconds I was trying to just think and then the moment I heard the dialogue it just brought it all back to me and look I agree I just think that's a brilliant ending to a film because look you you want a bit of bittersweet and it's been such a great adventure but how was it going to end and they ended in their own way free yeah no I didn't I thought oh you're short of ideas you know <laughs> they could have ended up in a nice motel having a nice pina colada no they were being chased could, by the police uh, they had about 300 policemen behind them chasing them off the cliff and Harvey Keitel went running behind the car <laughs> there was no there was no nice motel in that ending <laughs> all right you're on the panel RNZ National it is 431 it's time for headlines